Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. So I was driving here this evening and I heard a very popular radio preacher make a very common theological statement. If I said his name, you would know his name, but this isn't about people. This is about ideas. And uh, what he said was he was talking about the fact that people have a sin problem. And he was explaining how it is that God takes care of human sin problems. And he made the statement, if you just have faith and do the good works, then God, by his grace, will take care of the rest. Right reaction. Because that's exactly opposite of everything that Paul argued. Paul's argument was always that if Anything we do can obligate God to give us grace or righteousness or justification. Anything else that we can obligate God to do by our faith or our good works, well, then that's not grace. By definition, it's not grace. Paul goes on to say that it's actually a a debt. It's God paying us back because we did something, and then he's obligated. I have said for many, many, many years now, over and over again, that for grace to be grace, it cannot be dependent on anything within the person who is receiving the grace. And yet common theology says, God will be gracious to you if you, and whatever comes after the words if you, is wrong. Jesus saves no ifs, ands, or buts. Jesus saves, you don't add anything. Jesus saves, not because he's obligated, but because he is so gracious. And and from our perspective and the biblical perspective, the people he is going to save were determined before the foundation of the world. Therefore, God was not waiting around for those people to choose him or do good works or exercise faith. He had already determined to save those people, so he grants them the ability to have faith. He doesn't react to faith. He gives people faith, whether that's in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, or whether it's the Hebrews writer, I think it's Hebrews 12, saying that Jesus is the author and the finisher of faith. So I was surprised, once again, how easily somebody who is so big and nationally known can say the opposite of what the Bible says, and still people follow him and think, well, that's the proper biblical theology. And unless they read it for themselves, unless they study it out for themselves, they'll never recognize the error. They'll go through the rest of their lives thinking, well, that must be what the Bible teaches because that's what I've been told by my pastor, by this big-time radio guy. But I hope you recognize that the way you've been saved is by a God who is never the reactor. He is always the actor. And then everything that human beings do in response to that is human reaction. But never are human beings spoken of in the Bible as being the actor, and then God simply reacts. Let me show you an example of that as we get into tonight's lesson. Turn to 2 Kings, but go to 2 Kings 19. We're jumping forward just a little bit here because... This is the conclusion of everything we're going to be reading for the next two, almost three weeks. This is God's conclusion concerning Assyria coming down on Israel and the haughtiness with which they came down on Israel. We talked about that last week, that God used Assyria to punish Israel, and then God punished Assyria for the haughtiness with which Assyria punished Israel. And so 
here's a little more insight into God's attitude toward that because people do so naturally think, I did this. It's my work. It's my actions. And then if God participates in any way, it's a reaction. But God never allows human beings to think that when he's teaching them, when he's instructing them, he never allows them to think that they did it themselves. Uh, And you see the examples over and over, like (coughs) Nebuchadnezzar saying, uh, isn't this great Babylon which my hands have built? And then God made him crazy so that when he came back to his right mind, he would say that all the inhabitants of the earth, they're all reputed as nothing. And God does his will in the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand and no one can say, what are you doing? And Nebuchadnezzar found that out after he got done bragging about how great Nebuchadnezzar was. And God would not allow him to think that he had anything to do with it. Well, you see that time and time and time again. We're going to see it again in 2 Kings. So I'm going to give you the conclusion so you'll have that in mind through the stories that we're about to read because tonight we're going to talk about good King Hezekiah and it is very largely narrative. Tonight we're going to talk about the good stuff. Next week we'll talk about the warfare and about God extending Hezekiah's life by 15 years. But you have to recognize that whether it's Hezekiah or whether it's Sargon or whether it's Sargon's son, in everything that they do in their battles between each other and who's king and who's been raised up and who's been taken down, if any of them ever start thinking, it's me, I did this, God will always defend his right and say, no, it is me, it is all me, and this was all predetermined. And that's what he's going to say here in 2 Kings. Okay, so let's start at verse 20. Here in verse 20 of chapter 19, Isaiah, the son of Amos, shows up and is speaking to Hezekiah. Hezekiah has sent to Isaiah saying, I'm really afraid of, the, of this Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians. He's threatening me. He's coming down against Jerusalem. And so find out what Isaiah thinks about it. In verse 21, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against the king of Assyria. Well, let's look back at verse 20. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. And this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. She, this is Assyria, has despised you and mocked you, the virgin of Israel and Zion, And she has shaken her head behind you, O daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. So God's taking it personally and saying when people attack Jerusalem, they're not just attacking the Judahites, they're attacking me because I'm the God of Israel. This is the place where I have chosen to place my name. This is my land, my territory that I've given to my people. And so when you attack there, you're attacking me. And I want you to recognize that attack. It sounds very much like Jesus when he was dealing with Paul on the Damascus Road. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul was not out breathing out threatenings against Christ. He was breathing out threatenings against Christians, about those who were, who were in the way, people who believed in uh, Christ and his resurrection. But Jesus took it so personally that he said, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so this is an important principle. All the way back here, God's saying to, to uh, the king of Assyria, who do you think you're coming up against? You're coming up against me. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. Through your messengers, you have reproached the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, 
and I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses, and I entered its farthest lodging place and its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and with the sole of my feet I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Look at verse 25. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. Okay, so here's the king saying, I did all this. I went into the cedars of Lebanon. I stopped the rivers of Egypt. I, I'm conquering this area. and Now I'm coming up against Samaria and against Judea. And I did all these things. And God says, no, actually, I did it. Have you not heard that? Do you not know that? Listen to God defend himself. Have you not heard long ago I did it? From ancient times I planned it. So it was God who planned from long ago what the outcome was going to be. It was God who intended it and planned it from ancient days until it all came about in human history. Proof again that God is in control of human history, that the world is not random. The world is doing exactly what God foreordained to be done. God says, now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Now again, he's talking to Sennacherib. He's talking to the king of Assyria who is not a believer. And yet he says, I'm the one who foreordained that you'd have the ability to do all this. I'm the one who decided that Nebuchadnezzar would rule over Babylon. This is the same God who named Cyrus the Persian 150 years in advance and determined that he was going to be the king of Persia so that he could bring the, the Jews back to rebuild uh, the temple and the streets of Jerusalem. This is all God controlling the heart of the kings. Whether they are believing kings or whether they are foreign kings, it is God that is bringing about the end result, which is one of the reasons that I, I'm sort of amused when Christians tie themselves into a knot about Trump or Hillary. Because the same God who was in charge back then is in charge now. And he already knows who the winner is going to be and how long they're going to last in office and how long they're going to last on earth and when it's going to be time for their judgment. God knows all that, but it's going to play out exactly as God has determined it from the beginning. So God says, have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps and therefore their inhabitants were short of strength. Why were their inhabitants short of strength? Because God foreordained it. That's why. They were dismayed and they were put to shame. They were as vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as grass on the housetops is scorched because it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. God, the sovereign one, God, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent one. God, who's in charge of everything, says to the foreign king, I know when you sit down and get up, and I know how you rage against me. There are no secrets in God's universe. God knows exactly why the rulers of the world do the things that the rulers of the world do. It sounds very much, again, like Luke writing in the book of Acts and saying, that Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and the Jews were all gathered together to do whatever your hand predestined to be done. So the rulers of the world and the peoples of this world get together and say, here's our plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're not going to have this one rule over us anymore. We're going to throw off his shackles and we're going to do anything we want. And God knew full well that they were going to do that. And the same God who said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will recompense, is holding those people until the day of judgment for the very judgment that he has predetermined they're going to encounter. 
And I know how predestinarian that sounds, and I know how sovereign that sounds, but you can't escape that it's what the Bible says over and over again. Therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed. They were put to shame. Verse 27, but I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because of your raging against me and because of your arrogance that has come up into my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. You're heading back to Assyria, and I'm the one who will take you back, and you won't get to conquer Jerusalem. That's something that's going to happen later under the Babylonian captivity. That's the plan of God, so that the Jews end up in the very city that's going to be conquered by the Medo-Persians, so that Cyrus, the king of the Persians, can rise up and send the Jews back to rebuild the temple in the streets. This is all God's plan. So remember that, keep all that in mind. In a couple of weeks, we will see that, in fact, God does turn them back. And in fact, in one night, an angel of the Lord is going to go into the camp of the Assyrians and kill 185,000 people. Whoa! So God is going to defend Israel. He's going to defend the Jews because he's faithful to them. Go back to chapter 18. That's really where we're at tonight. Last week, we talked about the first six verses and about Nehushtan. So let's just read that real quickly. And then we're going to read about uh, Hezekiah and his victories and how he did good in God's sight. And then we're going to go into the Chronicles and read a couple chapters because I contend that there's nothing more fun than listening to Jim read. And uh, I'm going to make my way through a couple chapters of just a glowing report about Hezekiah. Unlike the other kings of, of Judah who did well for a while but then apostatized towards the end of their lives, Hezekiah really never did, even to the extent that God would add 15 years to his life. So Hezekiah is a good king, and in fact, the the reforms that he brings about in Jerusalem are said to be unlike anything that Jerusalem had seen since the days of Solomon. So you're reaching all the way back there to find another king as blessed as Hezekiah was. So we'll be on Hezekiah for a couple weeks because 2 Kings, which has been saying, there was a king, there was a king, there was a king, there was a king, there was a bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king. Suddenly at Hezekiah, it just stretches out and tells us lots of stories, and the chronicler does the same thing. They intend that we really understand Hezekiah, the good king. Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him, for he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, this is, again, an interesting representation of how the king represents the whole nation, because, in fact, it was not Hezekiah who went out and tore down the pillars and cut down the Asherah. It was the people of Jerusalem, after he restores the Passover feast and and the days of unleavened bread. And in fact, as we'll see tonight, that feast goes so well that after the end of seven days of feasting, the people decide, let's do this for another week. And they just stay in Jerusalem and have a massive feast before God for another week after that. And in the midst of that, they go out and cut down the pillars and the Asherah and the high places. But 
Hezekiah is credited with it because being a good and God-fearing king trickles down, if you don't mind that word, to all the peoples that he is ruling over since he is the head of that kingdom of that nation. And that's why God so frequently holds the king responsible for what the people do and oftentimes holds the people responsible for what the king does because he is the representative head of that nation. So verse 7, And the Lord was with him wherever he went to prosper. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria, and he did not serve him. Now you may remember that the previous king had made a deal with Assyria and was sending money to Assyria and just trying to keep Assyria at bay, but then made a deal with Egypt. And then the Assyrian king found out about it, and that began the incursions from Assyria down into Egypt. And so a wiser king here, Hezekiah, rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territories from the watchtower to the fortified city, which is just a Hebraism that means everywhere he went. He conquered in his territories. Now, of course, he's taking back land that belonged originally to Judah, but that the Philistines had taken, and then Jerusalem and the Jews and and the armies of Judah were now powerful enough under Hezekiah, with God's help, to go get those cities back. Now, it came about in the fourth year of Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. So Hezekiah became king while Israel, Samaria, was still a kingdom, but it was in the fourth year of his reign that you see Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, come in and conquer and take Samaria captive. And now there's a brief recapitulation of why it is that Israel was conquered, starting at verse 10. And at the end of three years, they, Assyria, captured it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Israel, Samaria was captured. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and put them in Halah and in Habor and the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God but transgressed his covenant even all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded them that they would neither listen nor do it. I'm just going to briefly point out one more time that the understanding of the Old Testament writers was that the law of Moses, the rules of Moses, formed a covenant. And I only emphasize that because so many theologians and preachers seem to get that wrong. They say that the law was a law that ever existed. It predated Moses and it exists in the church. And and they don't understand that that's a specific covenant made with a specific people and that the people who were actually a part of that covenant understood it to be a covenant. The church in the 21st century seems to not understand that. But the people who were in the covenant knew it was a covenant. And as I've said many, many times, the Ten Commandments are called the words of the covenant, which were written on the tablets of the covenant and placed in a box called the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know how many times God has to say, it's a covenant. So that then when you get to the New Testament and Paul talks about the old covenant being done away with, being nailed to Christ's tree and taken out of the way, and he refers to it as ordinances that were against us, and he writes that he wouldn't have known that he was coveting had it not been for the law saying don't covet, and that is all over and against the new covenant, which is made with 
Judah and Israel initially because God recognizes that that old covenant was broken and being a conditional covenant, God can't go back to that covenant to restore Israel and Judah. But God is faithful to Israel and Judah, does not change his mind, does not change his promises, still has an everlasting unconditional covenant with Abraham, and therefore he's going to restore the fortunes of Israel, but he can't do it by the Moses covenant. Because they broke that covenant, therefore he promises the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it's promised in Jeremiah 31 and it's promised in Hebrews 8. None of it is changed. So I say again, if you don't understand the old covenant, new covenant distinctives, and if you attempt to mix and match and bring some of that old covenant into the church age and impose it on the hearts and minds of Christian people, then you don't understand how the Bible works. The Bible is very clear that that covenant was done away with, and the new covenant is sufficient for God to save everybody he intends to save. That's the new covenant in Christ's blood. The old covenant was in the blood of oxen and sheep and was insufficient to fully pay the price for everybody's rebellion against God. But Christ's blood was fully sufficient, fully accomplished the redemption and justification that God intended, and therefore the new covenant is what we are under, and that is our entrance into God's presence. You got all that? I just had to say that out loud, add that for free, just so that, again, the folks who are listening out there in Internet land will just understand what the Bible does say about the Old and New Covenant. Okay, so that's as much 2 Kings as we're going to read tonight, because next week we're going to start with Sennacherib attempting to invade Judah, and just like we read at the beginning, God is going to put a hook in his nose and take him back to Assyria. He's not going to accomplish the attack on Judah. But that will take us to uh, Isaiah, because Isaiah writes about it, and that'll take us to the Chronicler, and that's a subject we need to handle in, in one night. Let's just talk about good King Hezekiah tonight. So turn to Second Chronicles. Turn to Second Chronicles 29. We're in Second Chronicles 29. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. And in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And he brought in priests and the Levites, and he gathered them into the square on the east. Now, you may remember that his father, the previous king, had even destroyed and broken up all of the utensils in the temple in order to make payment to the king of Assyria. And so he's determined to restore all of that. He's restoring the doors. He's opening the temple. He's setting up the Levitical priesthood again. He's reestablishing the worship of God which had fallen into disrepair over the years. So then he came and said to them, Listen to me, O Levites, consecrate yourselves now, and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord and have forsaken him, and turned their faces away from the dwelling places of the Lord, and they have turned their backs. They have also shut the doors of the porch, and put out the lamps, and have not burned incense, or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Well, these were all things that were supposed to go on continually. One of the acts of the Levites was to keep the, the candles in the holy place constantly lit and replace the showbread weekly on the Sabbath that they were supposed to keep the daily sacrifices going on the altar of God. And all of that had ceased in Jerusalem. So he's restoring all of the things that God had required in the covenant, in the law. And by the way, the reason that we don't 
light those candles and sacrifice those animals and keep that showbread. And the reason that we're not out back slicing lambs and sprinkling blood on every one of you is because we're not under that covenant. Does that seem obvious enough? Okay, I just wanted to drive that home. They have also shut the doors of the porch. They have put out the lamps and they have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem. And he has made them an object of terror, of horror, and of hissing, as you see now with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. So he saw all the bad things that had happened to Jerusalem as being a direct result of the people not being faithful to God that God had given them the covenant, do this, do the law, keep my worship, keep my temple on a constant, continual basis. They neglected that. And I think it's, it's just very human nature. Uh, I've seen it for so, so many years. I try not to let GCA fall into the trap of redundancy, repetitiveness, so that when you come to church, you have that sense of, oh, here we go again. But think about the hundreds and hundreds of years that they were killing animals every day, lighting candles, bringing out showbread, doing these things. And after a while, it just became operational. It was no longer the worship of God. And so it was natural that it would fall into disuse and fall into disrepair because natural people without the spirit of God simply cannot worship God in spirit and in truth. Exactly. And they treated it like and they treated it like ritual. And so they they quit performing those rituals because, as Gladys just said, they just couldn't get past the repetitiveness of the ritual and didn't have faith in the God that commanded them. Exactly. They lost the passion and became numb. Yes. And became numb. No more passion for it. And therefore the wrath of God. The Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem. And he made them an object of terror. And of horror and of hissing. Which means the surrounding nations saw. That they were falling into decline. And were hissing at them. Which is a sign of disrespect. Anybody ever been hissed at? If you were ever a performer in your life. At some point someone has hissed at you. It's a sign of disrespect. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now, it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and to burn incense. It was God who chose the Levites. It's God who chose that particular tribe. And so Hezekiah is restoring that tribe to God's original intention for them, that they would serve God and be his ministers. So verse 12, then the Levites arose. Okay, let's see how well I can pronounce these names. Because he now is going to name a few of the leading Levites. And it turns out that the leading Levites have Difficult to pronounce names. So we'll see how my tongue is doing. Then the Levites arose. Mahath, the son of Amasai, and Joel, the son of Azariah, from the sons of the Kohathites, and from the sons of Merari, Kish, the son of Abdi, and Azariah, the son of Jahalalel, and from the Gershonites, Joah, the son of Zimah, and Eden, the son of Joah, and from the sons of Elizaphan, there was Shimri and Jael, and from the sons of Asaph, Zechariah and Mattaniah, and from the sons of Heman, Jehiel and Shimei, and from the sons of Jaduthan, there was Shemaiah and Uziel. Good job. <laughs> That's 30 minutes of practice, huh? <laughs> okay. 
don't tempt me. I'm on a roll. I'm at very least on a croissant. And they assembled. You enjoyed that, did you? Okay. And they assembled their brothers, consecrated themselves, and went in to cleanse the house of the Lord according to the commandments of the king by the word of the Lord. So the priests went in to the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and every unclean thing which they found in the temple of the Lord, they brought out to the court of the house of the Lord. Then the Levites carried it away out to the Kidron Valley. Now they began the consecration on the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month, they entered the porch of the Lord. Then they consecrated the house of the Lord for eight days and finished on the 16th day of the month. Then they went in to King Hezekiah and they said, We have cleansed the whole house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, and the table of showbread with all of its utensils. Moreover, all the utensils which King Ahaz had discarded during his reign in his unfaithfulness, we have prepared and consecrated and behold they are before the altar of the Lord so then King Hezekiah arose early and assembled the princes of the city and went up to the house of the Lord and they brought seven bulls and seven rams and seven lambs and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom for the sanctuary and for Judah and he ordered the priests the sons of Aaron to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. They also slaughtered the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. They slaughtered the lambs also and sprinkled the blood on the altar. Then they brought the male goats of the sin offering before the king and before the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests slaughtered them and purged the altar with the blood to atone for all of Israel. And then the king ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all of Israel. He then stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with symbols. Being a person who loves symbols, I, I like that. With symbols and with harps and with lyres, according to the command of David and of Gad, the king's seer. And of Nathan the prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. And the Levites stood with their musical instruments of David and the priests with their trumpets. And then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord also began with the trumpets, accompanied by the instruments of David, the king of Israel, while the whole assembly worshipped. The singers also sang, and the trumpets sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Can you read that and also conclude that God is not okay with musical instruments? I mean, God ordained musical instruments in his worship. Yes, I mean, it's the whole congregation of the people singing and singing the Psalms of David, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and harps and lyres, and it must have been a wonderful thing to hear. Yes, as loud as they could. So the whole assembly worshipped. The singers also sang, the trumpets sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Now, at the completion of the burnt offerings, the king... And all that were present with him bowed down and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the singer. That's the Psalms. So they sang praises with joy. And they bowed down and they worshipped. Then Hezekiah answered and said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord... Come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all those who were willing brought burnt offerings. And the number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs. 
All these were for a burnt offering to the Lord, and the consecrated things were six hundred bulls and three thousand sheep. But the priests were too few, so that they were unable to skin all the burnt offerings. And therefore their brothers the Levites helped them until the work was completed, and until the other priests had consecrated themselves. For the Levites were more conscientious to consecrate themselves than the priests. And there were also many burnt offerings with the fat of the peace offerings and with the libations for the burnt offerings. And thus the service of the house of the Lord was established again. And then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had prepared for the people because the thing came about suddenly. Now I love that verse that Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had prepared for the people. This whole verse was about what the people prepared for God, for the worship of God. But it was such a glorious time, such an outbreak of God's worship and the restoration of the temple, and it broke out so suddenly. The king just established it. Just do it. Get it done. It's the first month right now. It's the eighth of the month. Let's get this done. And the people were so happy with it that they rejoiced in God who prepared all that for them. And God took yeah. over and poured it out on the people. And don't you really think that that's the way genuine worship is anyway? Mm-hmm. I have been in both in services here and in services in other churches where the worship, the going forth of the word, the whole thing was like time stood still. Tom and I use the phrase oftentimes, the king was present. And when that happens, you get that little taste of eternity where you're not even conscious of time anymore. And when it's over, you look at your watch and go, that was never two hours. How did that happen? And I think it's because God, when he inhabits the worship and the praises of his people, you do get that sense of God is present. God is with us. And these temporal things, these earthly things, these finite things don't matter anymore. They just kind of drift away from our conscience. And we're recognizing the worship and the praise of God and the, that sort of heavenly moment. And that's what happened to Israel here. What a grand and a great time this must have been. But wait, it gets even better because, like I said, they decided, let's not have a week of this. Let's stay in Jerusalem for another week. Let's just keep the party going. So chapter 30. Now Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, northern and southern kingdoms. This is during the time that the Assyrians are encroaching on Samaria, but they haven't conquered it yet. They haven't taken the people captive as a group yet. And so here's what Hezekiah does. During that overlap of the last king in Samaria, while Hezekiah is in his early years as king, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. Do you remember why it was that Jeroboam the first, Jeroboam who became the first king of the northern tribes, do you remember why he set up the calves and encouraged the people to worship the priesthood in the north? He didn't want people going to Jerusalem. He didn't want people going to Jerusalem. He was afraid that if they went to Jerusalem and worshiped the God who had his temple in Jerusalem, that he would lose his people to the southern kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so he set up foreign worship for them and caused the people to apostatize. Here's King Hezekiah now inviting the people of the northern kingdom to come and worship God in Jerusalem, the one thing that their evil kings had all been afraid they'd do. Mm. For the king and his princes and all the assembly of Jerusalem had decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. You may remember that back in the law, in the law of Moses, that everybody had to come to Jerusalem three times a year for the three feasts. But the Passover was one feast where if the way was too far, if it was too long for you, that you could wait until the next month. Instead of the first month, the 14th of the month, Abib, 
Instead of doing it then, you could do it the next month too. And so Hezekiah, perfectly in keeping with the law, says, well, then let's invite everybody and do it in the second month. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. Since they could not celebrate it at that time, right then when they were busy doing all that, because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient numbers, nor had the people been gathered in Jerusalem. It was going to take time to gather them all in Jerusalem. So let's wait until next month to do it. And, and thus the thing was right in the sight of the king and in the sight of all the assembly. So they established a decree to circulate a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba even to Dan that they should come and celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. For they had not celebrated it in great numbers as it was prescribed. And the couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the hand of the king and his princes, even according to the command of the king, saying, O sons of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to those of you who escaped and are left from the hands of the kings of Assyria. And do not be like your fathers and your brothers, who were unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers, so that he made them a horror, as you see. Now do not stiffen your necks like your fathers, but yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord that his burning anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive. And they will return to this land. For the Lord your God is a gracious and a compassionate God and will not turn his face away from you if you will return to him. So the couriers passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun. But they laughed at them to scorn and mocked them. Now, given everything that God has done down in Jerusalem, giving them good King Hezekiah, bringing about the reforms and the restoration of the temple worship, and then sending a letter to these people who had long ago given up on Yahweh in favor of their idols and their foreign gods, here's the invitation, return to God. Restore the worship that Moses gave you in the original covenant that formed you as a nation. Let's all gather in Jerusalem. And they laughed and they mocked. Can you see why God would bring Sennacherib down on them? They deserved it. God would have to punish them. Which is why, again, it's so amazing that God ended up then punishing Assyria for the haughtiness with which they punished God's people Israel. Nobody gets to be haughty. Nobody gets to say, my hand did it. Nobody gets to raise themselves up. And by the way, part of the reason that I started with the particular theological things that I began with tonight, both in mentioning the preacher that I heard on the way here and also reading the section of Second Kings about God always being the actor, is because the language here is, if you return to God, then your son's will come back to the land and God is a gracious God and will restore you. And those are the kind of phrases out of the Old Testament that make people think that God is a reactor. But we saw God himself say, I planned all this a long time ago. This was my intention a long time ago. So you again can never say, when you look at the whole context of the Bible, you can never say that God is reacting to people. So, because they laughed at him and turned him to scorn and mocked him, verse 11 says, Nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. And the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart and to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. So you see it again here. The people who returned and the people who worshipped God were the people who God gave the heart to do it. They didn't do it of their own 
supposed free will. They didn't do it, and then God reacted positively to them because they decided of themselves. God had to give them a heart of worship in order that they would worship him. It is always, always throughout the Bible, God's sovereignty that leads anybody to worship God. It is never, ever somebody who just woke up one day and said, you know, I'm probably a wretched sinner. I should probably run to God. You know that sin that I enjoy so much? I should probably give that up. And I should probably go to church. That's a good idea. In fact, since it's all up to me, I should probably go get the Holy Spirit. I should probably go bring him down and put him in me. It's always God, again, who is the first cause. Okay, we're nearly done. Sort of, kind of. Now, many people were gathered at Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month, a very large assembly, and they arose and they removed the altars which were in Jerusalem. See, the people did it, but King Hezekiah got credit for it. They also removed all the incense altars and they cast them into the brook Kidron. Now, by the way, hold on to that because later when Sennacherib sends representatives to come and threaten the king Hezekiah he's going to say that Yahweh was being worshipped in those high places and in those groves and he's lying he's misunderstanding the worship of God so kind of hold on to that idea that the people destroyed the high places and the Asherah because those were dedicated to foreign gods not to Yahweh but the king of Assyria is going to misunderstand the worship of the real God of Israel so then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed of themselves and consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. And they stood at their stations after their custom, according to all the law of Moses, the man of God. And the priests sprinkled the blood which they received from the hands of the Levites, for they were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves, and therefore the Levites were over the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was unclean in order to consecrate them before the Lord. For the multitude of the people, even many from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not purified themselves, and yet they ate the Passover otherwise than prescribed, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. So there's this cleansing of the people that's going on, and there's so many people, and there's not enough priests, and even the Levites are joining in, and it's the day of the Passover, and all the people who had come down from Israel and from Zebulun and from Ephraim and Manasseh and Issachar, those people hadn't been ceremonially clean, and yet they were so happy to be there worshiping God that they ate the Passover anyway, believing that God would would recognize that they were attempting to worship him and would forgive that they had not done it according to the purification rules. So the Lord heard Hezekiah and he healed the people. And the sons of Israel present in Jerusalem celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with great joy and the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day after day with loud instruments to the Lord. And then Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good insight in the things of the Lord. So they ate for the appointed seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord God of their fathers. And then the whole assembly decided to celebrate the feast another seven days so they celebrated the seven days with joy so it was so good to them and the worship of God was so joyous to them that they couldn't stop it's probably an unfair comparison but I know this feeling Carol will relate to this because when the conference the annual Sovereign Grace Bible Conference was up in Lexington at Main Street Baptist Church 
Elder Ward used to make a joke. The conference would begin on Monday night, and it would end on Friday night. So starting on Thursday night, he would say it was Tuesday night. And then on Friday night, he would say it was Wednesday night. And the hardest thing to do was leave that place. I mean, it was just so fulfilling, so satisfying. The worship of God and the preaching and the music and the choirs and the... It was just such a sense of fellowship and togetherness and the praise of God. And we used to say, now we have to go back to our real lives. And none of us wanted to go back to our real lives. We just wanted to stay there. We wanted to camp there. We wanted to just don't, don't break this spirit that there is among us right now. And that's a wonderful feeling. And some of you will remember in the earliest days when I would go to the conference and I'd come back here dressed all in black in a black suit and, and I would stand here and just say, I'm trying to hold on to the feeling. I don't want the feeling to stop. So I relate to this idea that they got to Jerusalem and it was so good to them. The worship of God was so satisfying and fulfilling and God giving them a heart of worship and I can see why they would say, let's not go home. Let's just stay here and keep doing it for another week. So they did. All the assembly decided to celebrate the feast another seven days. So they celebrated the seven days with joy. For Hezekiah, the king of Judah, had contributed to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep. And the princes had contributed to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And a large number of priests consecrated themselves, and all the assembly of Judah rejoiced with the priests and the Levites, and all the assembly that came from Israel, both the sojourners who came from the land of Israel and those living in Judah. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, because there was nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And then the Levitical priests arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy dwelling place, to heaven. So this is the restoration of Judah. Isn't that wonderful? It's hard to believe that after this, they're going to go into the Babylonian captivity just a few kings away. Once again, as I've often, often repeated, the people who see the restoration of God, the protection of God, the provision of God, that generation of the people of God worship him and recognize him in everything they do. And then the next generation forgets. And the next generation forgets more. Mm -hmm. And you saw that all the way through the Old Testament and through the book of Judges that they would finally reach the point of, of their enemies coming down on them and they'd be corrected in the wild animals or there'd be a drought or there'd be a famine and they'd cry out to God. And then God would send them a judge and restore them and build up Israel again and they would worship and praise and thank God. And then the next generation came and then the next and they'd forget. And so here Jerusalem is having a heyday. Not since the days of Solomon was there a day like this under King Hezekiah. Next week, we will talk about Hezekiah's dealings with the king of Assyria, his attempts to keep Jerusalem safe from the king of Assyria. And you will see the king of Assyria break his word time and again and finally attempt to conquer Jerusalem. And who gets called in? Well, the prophet Isaiah. And so this is where Isaiah fits in the history of ancient Israel. Got it? Got it. Isn't that fun? Yes. Any questions? Uh, did, they not, did they eat part of the sacrifice? Was that their food? Yes, they ate their own sacrifice. There were particular parts of the sacrifice that were particularly for the priest and particularly for the Levites. But... One of the tithing rules in the Old Testament was that you would set aside, over the course of the year, you'd set aside tenths for the feasts. And then when you went to the feasts, you would eat that tithe, which a lot of people, again, in the modern church who impose tithing on people, don't understand that you would eat your tithes. You wouldn't bring them to the church. You'd... There was a tithe that went to the Levites, 
There was a tithe that went to the feast where you ate your tithes. And there was a tithe to the widows and the fatherless and all that. That was the meat that was in the storehouses. And the church is not the storehouse. It's just as well. Money isn't that tasty anyway. Money is not that tasty anyway. That's so true. Especially those quarters. So, so yeah, they would, they would eat their own sacrifices, eat their own tithes. And that was how God sort of financed these feasts that he required. Anything else? We're good. Let's go home. Thank you for your patience. That was a little long tonight, but I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.